If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome. This is Medicine in America, a podcast that will share the stories of physicians and other healthcare professionals who are changing the way they practice. We will hear what made them realize they had to reinvent and rethink their approach to treating patients. My name is Anthony Manson. I'm a 20-year-plus veteran of the healthcare industry, and I'm being joined today by my co-host and longtime friend and colleague, Todd Harrington. Hi, everyone. Today, we'll be talking to a very special physician and a good friend of mine, Dr. Michael Frankenthaler, who's currently Chief of Palliative Care at Jacoby Medical Center. He started out in critical care medicine and then discovered the power of palliative care. He has a great story of what led him to palliative care and how misunderstood this specialty is and what the real potential of palliative care is to really make a difference in patient lives. And we're excited to have a great discussion with him. Michael, let's get started. Could you give us an explanation of what palliative care is today? Absolutely. First of all, thank you guys for having me. I'm very excited for this podcast, and I think it's a very good way to help explain what palliative medicine is to many people. It is not clearly understood, not just by the lay public, by other medical professionals. So any opportunity I have to explain it is great. I think of palliative medicine as care for seriously ill people. It is a relatively new subspecialty, goes back a few decades now, goes to the early 90s when it became its own board-certified subspecialty. And it's really just about what we could do to help improve the quality of life for patients with serious illnesses. And by improving the quality of the life of patients, we recognize that patients don't live in a bubble. They have their own community, their own family, whether it's by blood, by choice. And we want to address the issues related to dealing with a serious illness with not just the patient, but their whole unit, their family, their loved ones, their friends, the people that they look to for support also need support. It's not easy being a caregiver to somebody who's really sick. So we really try to encompass that whole unit in our care. Do you work with a team of other doctors or is it, how do, how do you start working with the patient? Are you referred? Excellent question. I was just about to talk about how we are a multidisciplinary field. Usually there is a palliative medicine team that is made up by a provider, a doctor, a nurse practitioner. There's social workers, there's chaplains that are usually part of the team. We have the ability to bring in other team members as needed, physical therapy, occupational therapy. And what we really do a good job of, in my opinion, is helping to communicate between other teams. We're usually brought in 
by a primary team, whether that's a internal medicine, surgery, oncology, critical care. In the hospital setting where I mostly work, we're usually consulted by a primary team. And we help to, you know, not just look at the lungs or the heart or the blood pressure or the cancer or the surgical issues. We try to take a step back and look at the entire patient and try to communicate honestly and openly with the patient, with the families, and with the other doctors and providers and teams so that we could really do a good job of clearly communicating what's happening to a patient, to their family, talk about with a patient many times, you know, not do you want to live? Of course, the patient wants to live. Of course, somebody wants their mother to live. But it's about how you want to live. And that's one of the major misconceptions about palliative medicine. Doctors, uh, patients, the lay public think palliative medicine is about dying, but it's really about living and how to live as good as possible for as long as possible. So the difference then, because I went through that with my mother, so hospice, that's the final step uh, versus palliative. Hospice is a small sub section of palliative medicine. So all hospice falls under palliative medicine, but palliative medicine is so much more than hospice. Hospice is specialized care for people with a prognosis of six months or less if the disease were to run its natural course. Okay. So they're still under treatment though, right? So if I have stage four pancreatic cancer and I, oncology says I have six months, I could access palliative care at that point? Absolutely. Palliative care can be delivered along with disease-modifying treatments, curative intention treatments, and palliative care could also be for people who want all of their treatment geared towards ensuring comfort and only quality-of-life treatments. Many times when we're talking about quality of life alone, that's when you think about hospice. So who decides, uh, as far as palliative care, when does that flag go up? Oh, this is palliative care. I mean, how does it get initiated? the palliative care part of someone's journey. Uh, I think, I mean, you have a team, but when does that start? Like they get to a certain point and, and are you, when are they called in? Because Anthony and I were talking about how few people access it. And I'm wondering what's the, what's, what's the barriers to it and why is it delayed or is it not delayed? I just trying to understand when it starts or when it's yeah. start to be accessed. Unfortunately, it is very delayed, particularly in the Northeast, where we're a very heavy subspecialized medical um, community and culture, but there's a lot of barriers. My personal opinion, being somebody who does mostly inpatient hospitalized palliative care in very high acuity tertiary hospitals that have sick patients, is a lot of the barriers are with the primary teams not understanding that the earlier we're involved the better. We're working very hard as a palliative community to kind of upstream consults. There's a lot of different tools that we use. We have trigger tools in place at my hospital where if patients meet certain criteria, then a email or a message is triggered to the palliative care team to review the chart and talk to the primary team about the possibility of us being involved early and helping patients. You know, there are many times where 
will get consulted early by uh, certain oncologists because patients have serious disease, and we help those patients through their chemotherapy treatments with symptom management, and we help them through some of the other social and emotional issues associated with a new diagnosis of a serious disease. And we can follow those patients on the inpatient and outpatient side for months or years and then not be needed anymore. And we love that, you know, when people are cured or when people are doing so well that and their issues are handled. It's a great thing. Yeah, it sounds it sounds so amazing. I mean, it, it, as a resource and bringing in, if I was a caregiver or a family member, to be able to access palliative care to me would be so important. I'm just wondering, like, what's preventing it? Is it financially driven that it's not reimbursable in certain situations? I would think is it primary team like uh, resistant to it, relinquishing some power, maybe. I don't know. Sometimes it's a bit of control, but it's also what we talked about earlier not understanding that palliative medicine is appropriate at any stage along with curative medications in somebody with a serious illness. So many doctors say, oh, I don't need palliative yet. When in fact, what palliative can do is just help a patient deal with whatever is happening on so many different levels. Because I think one of the other things to remember is quality care is about taking care of all aspects of a patient, not just their immediate medical issues. The control thing was interesting, like because if someone's a primary team and then they think, okay, who's this group coming in and taking over? I, I mean, I know it's everyone's out to save the patient, hopefully, but there must be some little territorial thing going on there as far as, as you said, control. Like I've been taking care of this patient forever, the uh, primary well, I'm not ready to relinquish the power, so to speak, or is it, can it be approached by more collaborative? Like, no, no, we're here to work with you. We're not, you know, removing you kind of mentality. That collaboration is a very important point. And one of the things that I do is I build palliative medicine programs. I rebuild them. I start them from scratch. There's always, when you have a new team in place, when you have a new system in place, there's always people that kind of feel encroached on by other doctors. Mm. So the way that we really show our value in providing quality care for our patients is one patient at a time. And when the doctor who calls us or the doctor who sometimes hasn't called us on their own, the resident called or the family called because we have an open access where families and nurses are allowed to call us. We always ask the primary team for permission. But when that family says to a doctor, Thank you so much for sending that team in. They really explained things so well, and now I understand what's happening. And thank you, and, you know, I'm happy you did that. And the doctor says, wow, I've just been helped by a team that I was worried about. And on the next patient, they'll think of us earlier, or they'll think of us more often. That's how you kind of break down the silos between different specialties. We're not about taking patients away from doctors or other providers. We're not about saying, stop this treatment, stop that treatment. We're about meeting a patient and their family where they are, communicating, doing something that I feel very passionate about in medicine, and I call it bringing common sense back to medicine. We do a lot of learning in medicine about what can be done next, not enough learning and teaching and thought process about what should be done next. And what should be done is dependent on a patient's goals 
a realistic expectation of what's the upsides and downsides from various treatments. And really being honest and open in an appropriate way, not just with families and patients, but with the various teams. When the kidney doctor says, you know, I think it's more the heart, and the heart doctor says, I think it's more the lungs, and the lung doctor says, nope, it's the heart. And then they all say, but the liver is failing now. You want to get everybody on the same page and come up with a plan that makes sense, that's realistic, and most importantly, in line with what is important to that patient as expressed usually by the patient, sometimes by the family. Well, is palliative care then, when if all those doctors are saying something different, are you, your team coming in and kind of looking at all the data and helping to kind of bring the argument to a more focused diagnosis? Or is that gonna, that's just difficult? Sometimes it's getting the right diagnosis, but usually it's all there. Lots of times what it really is, the ability to get the different teams that are concentrating on appropriately on what they specialize in, in the same room are making phone calls. We learned a lot during the pandemic surges that a lot could be done over the phone that we used to think was better in person. But I know I could get people on the phone with each other and synthesize what people are saying because the idea, more importantly than is every doctor saying something different, families hear that. 98% of what doctors say is usually the same. That 2% that are different is what confuses patients families, nurses, residents, other doctors. And when you ask a patient what they understand, they will concentrate on what they heard that was different. So many times I will say to a patient, 98% of what all the doctors are saying are the same. The 2% that's different is because if you get five doctors in a room and ask them their opinion, you'll get at least 10 answers. So let's concentrate what's on this, what's the same. Let's talk about how when you are sick, sometimes things change rapidly. So a doctor's opinion changes rapidly also. And trying to just normalize the variability and normalize the uncertainty of serious disease is a lot of what we try to do. And we try to help doctors who naturally think that way, but have trouble expressing it to patients and families. We try to help them with communication issues. Boy, you're so right, Michael. I mean, that's incredible to me. There's so many times where there's just such a lack of understanding in terms of what the physician is, is discussing and recommending that just having almost a, that independent communicator can make a big difference. Part of this podcast is really looking at the inefficiencies in healthcare and thinking about what we can do to obviously improve our healthcare models. And I'm just wondering in, in terms of the way you described it is kind of to me is kind of having the right team in place at the right time, depending on the course of the disease, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, you know, does this save us money, palliative care in the long term? Is there proven cost savings by having the palliative team and, you know, manage a certain period of disease? Absolutely. Or does it add cost? The reason palliative medicine literally has exploded in the last couple of decades to the point where I believe now more than 90% of all hospitals with more than 100 beds have a palliative medicine team in place. It is not because we generate revenue. You go to a cardiologist and they do a bunch of tests. You go to a neurosurgeon, they're doing operations. They're generating revenue for a hospital and for a system. What palliative medicine does and what model after model has shown 
is we provide cost avoidance, especially in really sick patients, especially in patients in the intensive care unit. So if there is a patient that families getting conflicted information and in the ICU, which could run 10 to 20 to even $50,000 a day in costs, if there's care that is not in line with the goals of the patient and that cost is avoided and days of the ICU are saved and hospitalized days are saved and readmissions are decreased because we have a plan in place when somebody leaves the hospital, what to do if they get sick again or when they get sick again. That type of care really helps to avoid cost. I can't help but think of a story. I won't go into detail. My daughter had surgery long ago in NIH, and he was talking to me about the surgeon about doing a certain test. And he goes, I go, do you really need to do that test? And he looked at me and goes, Todd, I work for the government. I don't do an extra test for money. Mm-hmm. And I, go, I never forget that. And that's why, that's why I asked that, is that do the hospital wanting to charge might find ways to, sadly, do some more tests, and you guys can step in and go, you know what? Maybe we don't need all that stuff. And, you know, that type of alignment between the interests of doctors and hospitals and healthcare systems is something that in healthcare we need to work on. You need everybody to have the same kind of goals in mind Mm -hmm. so that you're not doing tests that are not necessary. But this is not new. This goes back to when I was in training in the 90s in medical school and when I did a sub-internship, which is when a medical student functions kind of like a resident, the doctor that I reported to wanted to know every test, the cost, and what you're going to do with the results. Hmm. He taught me, if you don't have a plan for the results, Hmm. you don't do the test. Very smart. You don't do it just to know a number. You do it because you're going to act upon those results. It's going to change treatment or prognosis or knowledge that's going to help you in the care of your patient. And trying to teach something that's now a couple of decades old to my learners going forward is one of the things I really try to do. I think that's great. One thing we're trying to do in in medicine in America is talk to healthcare providers about their journey. We're noticing a lot of physicians starting to rethink how they practice medicine. And a lot of them are changing their models or changing specialties. And I just, I know you started out in the emergency room in New York and critical care, and then you made a move to palliative. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate and tell us a little bit personally, what made you say ER is not right for me? And how did you get interested in palliative? Because I think there's a lot of doctors facing burnout. Your story might might inspire some of them. All right, thank you for that question, Anthony. And we've spoken about this before. In general, you're right, I am a critical care, ICU trained doctor originally. I loved the ICU when I was in uh, residency, all the emergencies and the crazy things that happened and seeing all the medicine in 24 hours really excited me. And my thought was, this is a great opportunity to handle really sick patients and make a difference in their life and turn them around. And in reality, we do that in the ICU, but not as much as I really thought. We became less about treating the patients that really can be cured and more about treating the really sick patients. When I was working at NYU in the ICU and treating all these very complex patients, knowing that 
even if I get them out of the ICU, I'm not going to be changing their underlying prognosis or course 90% of the time. And I was a good ICU doctor. Some people think I was very good. I never think I'm very good at anything. I'm a married man, so I know better. (laughs) But along the way, the patients who I was helping when I couldn't cure them, the patients and families who I gave options to when the ICU to me didn't make sense, those were the families that always said thank you. Those were the families that sent me flowers. Those were the families that really appreciated me and said, no doctor has ever talked to me like this. No doctor has ever explained it to me like this. Getting to the point of what are we going to do that's going to be beneficial, that's going to help you do better, get better, feel better, live better, even if we're not going to cure you, was uh, an aspect of my job that I loved. And when I was starting to burn out in the ICU, working shifts and shifts with very sick patients and not feeling great about many of the people I cared for, these things gave me hope. So when one of my partners, also an ICU doctor at NYU, who ran the palliative care team, would be away, he would ask me to cover for him. And I loved doing that. And when he got a phone call that there was a job at North Shore Hospital in a newly created palliative care unit, they needed a director. And this palliative care unit, a place for really sick patients, was unique in New York City in that it was going to be taking patients on ventilators. My uh, partner and my buddy said, Michael, you may like this because they need somebody who knows ventilators. And as an ICU doctor, I knew those. And I, at the point, was also considering leaving medicine. I was considering going into medical advertising. I had some phone interviews with Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. This was in 2007. Mm. And so we all know what happened to those companies within the next year. (laughs) Thinking about what I wanted to do when I heard about this job, when I met with the people at North Shore, including a phenomenal critical care doctor who was starting the unit and was running the palliative care unit there, and the chief of medicine, who was somebody I knew from the pulmonary critical care world, uh, a guy by the name of Steve Kamholtz, who was an amazing doctor, and Dana Lusbader, who was the doctor who started the program, I said, this is what I want to do. This is a field in medicine that I could go into. I was able to grandfather in because of the experience I had at NYU on the palliative team and take the boards. And it was something that really reinvigorated my love for medicine. And uh, it's the only field where you can really help every patient. There's another level of compassion with it. So it sounds like you really found a, a home where you, you really feel like you're making a difference. It's about making a difference, but it's also about knowing that um able to practice medicine the way I always thought of practicing it, the way I've wanted to practice it, and in a way that helps me to sleep well at night. People say, in palliative care, it's so sad. And I say, it's the opposite of sad. When I'm helping a patient make decisions and being honest with them, there may be sad situations, but I'm really helping them. So that makes me feel good. And when I have a patient who finishes their radiation treatment and is improved, they really feel good. So it's, again, not about dying, it's about living. And that's one of the holy grails in palliative medicine. Part of getting those earlier consults is helping 
families, patients, other providers understand that about what we do. Paul Mayo, who is one of my ICU mentors, and Rosalind Schneider, uh, another, and they really taught me to say what I mean, mean what I say, understand what works and what doesn't work. So I learned a lot of communication through my training. When I was in medical school, I never heard of palliative care. I barely heard of it through training. Near the end of my training, a few hospitals got it. But now, like I said, it's ubiquitous. Very good. I like that. Yeah, I think you made such a strong case for palliative care today. It's really, I think the time has come for modern healthcare systems to really expand the reach of palliative care. I'm wondering how other providers and administrators out there, what can they do to help extend the palliative care reach? What recommendations would you have? My recommendations now and what a lot of people are working on, including my former mentor, Dana Lusbader, they're working on really outpatient palliative programs and outpatient palliative hmm. models or advanced illness care models, things that we could go into the community, bring providers to the homes of patients with serious medical conditions that may not be able to get out to their doctors, bringing care to them in order to avoid hospitalizations, avoid crises that lead to functional decline and debility and helping people in the community to understand their diseases and what can be done to help them to live the life they want to live realistically with the disease they have. So the next, I think, frontier is really expanding the at-home palliative options, at-home serious illness management programs, and that all comes down to finances. <laughs> you know, how do we get insurance companies to understand the model that an investment up front saves a lot of money down the road. We could talk probably for hours about our healthcare payment system and what's wrong with it and what works well and what we could build on, because it's not all horrible, but also what needs a lot of reform and making it about quality and care and avoiding, in my opinion, the hospital. You know, I told you I'm a mostly an in-hospital palliative care doctor, but the hospital is where the sickest of the sick are, where the worst of the worst germs are. And I tell this to families when they're worried about sending their loved one home or to a rehab or out of the hospital. I say that's such a good thing. And sometimes we don't know until we try to get somebody out, you know, whether it's going to work or not. But you want to be out if you can. You don't want to be where the sickest of the sick are. True. You don't want to be where the natural inclination of the people that work in the hospital is to wake somebody up and ask them if they're tired. Right. Yeah. Right. Jeez. And that's not how that's you heal. Efficient. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing in palliative medicine is we'd love to talk up the specialty. We all believe in it. And when you go into this specialty, you do it because you believe in it and you believe in what you're doing. So any opportunity to explain palliative medicine and talk it up, I think is a really a good thing. So thank you guys. Here, here. Thank you, Michael. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Medicine in America podcast. We have many more episodes coming, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Also, make sure you tell your friends about it. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Frank Thaler and my co-host, Todd Harrington. 
And of course, a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Anthony Manson. Until next time.